I'm Marty Moscow, and welcome to The Connection. Thanks so much for joining us. Attachment theory has determined that there are three basic attachment styles, secure, anxious, and avoidant. Psychologists John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth documented this phenomenon in the 20th century and determined that children's need for security was critical to their development and depended on the quality of their relationship with their caregivers. But development doesn't end when we're adults, and attachment styles can be influenced by other factors, like life experiences and our interactions with others. Our guest psychiatrist and neuroscientist Amir Levine has been researching attachment styles for years. He's the author of Attached, the New Science of Adult Attachment and How It Can Help You Find and Keep Love, is a wildly popular book written back in 2010. He joins us today on The Connection to talk about the roots of our attachment styles, how our brains, bodies, and bonding are interconnected, and how we can strengthen our relationships based on what we are learning about these styles. And Amir Levine, great to have you with us today on The Connection. Oh, hi. I'm happy to be here. We're very happy to have you with us, especially talking about this topic. I must say, I really, really love it. Let's start at the beginning. And why is attachment, as you describe it, as vital to our survival as food and water? I mean, without food and water, we die. Should we think of attachment that way? Um, Exactly. It it was the genius of John Bowlby who first really thought about it that way. And he witnessed that uh, during World War II because they had to move a lot of young children and babies from London during the Blitz and they moved them to Northern England. And while they took care of all of their uh, essential needs like food and water, they didn't have time to interact with them as much. And he noticed that uh, a lot of uh, small children and infants had what we called failure to thrive. They were not uh, growing well and they, they did not do well without also the necessary attachment. And that's how it all came to be. To me, it seems very logical now and mm-hmm. it seems like a given, but at the time, the Freudian theory was that attachment only develops because the mother or the caregiver supplies with food and water and the necessary the necessities and because of that attachment develops but he said no we could see what happens when you get only that it's not enough for human development you need the attachment and also for other animals by the way well, and I do want to get to the other animals, but let's go back to our ancient ancestors. And, and what is the, I guess, connection, for lack of a better word, for attachment and how our ancestors were able to survive? So that's, that's the key element, because we have to go back and think when, when was our emotional brain formed. And it wasn't formed in our everyday life, but the everyday life that we have today. That, from an evolutionary perspective, is just like a fraction of a second. It was formed when we didn't have any of these things. We didn't have any possessions. We didn't have money in the bank. We didn't have uh, apartments or houses, cars, money. None of this existed. We couldn't carry anything with us. The only thing that kept us, that kept us safe, and that's kind of like the genius of the social brain, hmm. it figured out that once you have more people around you, you're immediately safe. Just having one person next to you reduces your chances of getting uh, eaten uh, alive by 50% because they'll go to either you or the other one next to you. So that's a huge difference. Um, so the brain figured that out and calculated that into feeling of safety. But then our human brain and many brains of other animals took it a step further because it can also evaluate 
the quality of that relationship. It's not just enough to have someone next to you, but are they going to really help you? Uh, or are they going to like, like throw you um, to the lines, you know? Well, I, I mentioned the fact that there are these three basic attachment styles. And let me just quote what you wrote in your book. You say, secure people feel comfortable with intimacy and are usually warm and loving. Anxious people crave intimacy and are often preoccupied with their relationships and tend to worry about their partner's ability to love them back. And avoidant people equate intimacy with a loss of independence and constantly trying to minimize closeness. I'm thinking, though, and this is probably that was probably a more a adult description of these various styles. But nonetheless, there's so many ways that parents raise children. It's not if you do X, Y, and Z, you get a secure child, or X, Y, and Z, and you get an avoidant child. Right. Not at all. And you're right. It's more description for people who are for adults. But um, the way that I look at it, it's basically on two dimensions. One is the, 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 it's like one dimension is how sensitive of a radar do you have to potential danger? And in attachment lingo, it's really like a new language to learn a new language. And I, it really speaks to me a lot. And that's why I became so, hmm. um, interested in this topic because it's such a, I find it to be such a useful, uh, language to look at the word to use to describe things that I see. So it looks at the level of, uh, how sensitive of a radar do you have to potential danger, which means a threat to the connection that you have with other people, to their availability. So if you have a very sensitive radar to that and uh, you can see potential threat that they're not available or something might have happened to them, then you have more, you, you score higher on the anxious uh, dimension. And if you, and then the other dimension is how comfortable you feel with intimacy and closeness. So if you don't really like closeness that much, then you'll score high on the on the avoidant dimension, and the interplay between them then creates your specific, what we call today attachment orientation, and the way that people think about it no more now is like that it's more on a spectrum rather than a categorical mm -hmm. categorical um, uh, identity. And it should be said that that most people um, have secure attachments, correct? So the original study in adults, and also actually, it's very interesting that it's also very similar to also in children, found that about, they found that around 55% of their sample were, um, were secure, about 25% were avoidant, and the rest were anxious, and a very small fraction actually are a combination of anxious and avoidant. Hmm. So yeah, the majority of, of people are, are secure, there are some people that now say that the, 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 the rates of insecurity are rising in our population. Huh. There's more insecure people now. Well, and just to underscore the, the more sort of insecure, avoidant, anxious people, I can imagine if I were a child growing up in a house where there was neglect or even abuse, that I would see danger in the world. And that would make me very wary of attaching myself or connecting with other people. So I think that's when we talk about the small fraction that are both anxious and avoidant, the, the, that oftentimes is thought to be really uh, potentially a cause of having endured some sort of some, some trauma. Right. Because you, when you endure trauma and you're small, 
you have both the source of danger and the source, the source of only uh, security and care in the world come from the same person or persons. And that's very confusing to our brain. So on the one hand, you cling to them because you want, like, you want to be close to them because that's how we feel safe. But on the other hand, time and time, you witness that being close to them is not safe. And that creates a, a great deal of confusion to our emotional brain. And that's oftentimes when we get that anxious avoidant attachment style. Do you worry about children who are in the midst of war? And of course, there are around the world. Yes, all the time. I think children and also adults, I have to say, that's part of why I love this area, this area of research so much. And actually, I also use it in my private practice in treating patients, because it's a very uh, malleable system. And it can really change. And uh, many children who have an insecure attachment style in their childhood would actually grow up and they can become much more secure. And I find it very promising, but I also find that trauma and potentially unsafe situations can definitely increase the insecure attachment. But I would think, um, just sort of broadly speaking, that if a child is securely attached to a parent and they are in war, that that attachment can have some protective ability for that child. I think so. So I think really, if you think about it, the whole attachment thing is really a system to regulate our affect. Because hmm. in the way that the, these attachments, uh, the, the way that these attachment styles were discovered, the attachment styles were discovered. I mentioned John Bowlby and how he discovered this whole idea that uh, attachment is just as necessary as food and water. And then, but when people talk about attachment theory, the name of Mary Ainsworth always comes up. Yeah. And she uh, basically is the one who discovered attachment styles. First in Uganda, she watched, she was looking, she was wa uh, look, watching, she was doing these observational studies with um, mothers who were weaning their babies. And that's when she saw these attachment styles. And then when she came back to Baltimore, she designed what we call the strange situation test, where she had um, a mother and their like young child, like toddler come into a room full of toys in the lab and you could watch them from a one-way mirror and in the room there's also a research assistant and there you typically see you can see it on youtube today they're still doing these studies today and i they did do watch it yes test. oh yeah it's really quite something to watch it you see that they go into the room the child sees all these new toys starts pointing excited to play with the new toys and then they ask the mother to leave the room and invariably you see like the child drops uh, whatever it has and sort of like goes over, like uh, goes over to the door, starts banging, crying, screaming. And then they ask them, like the research assistants try to interest them with a toy. They'll throw it in her face. And then when the, uh, they ask the mother to go back into the room and at that moment hmm. in the reunion is when Mary Answorth saw three attachment styles. The babies that were secure come down immediately it's really astonishing to see how quickly they come down. The mother hugs them, and they're like, come down, and immediately start pointing at the toys. The anxious, uh-uh, not so much. They, it takes them time to come down. Sometimes they come down, and then they start crying again, remembering the horrible things that happened to them. And it, they don't really become engaged in playing. It takes them a long time. And the avoidant baby, sometimes they won't even cry, or even they do. They stay limp in their mother's hand, like hands. And it takes them time to re-engage with toys. And even if they don't cry, you see that their blood pressure and heart rate is through the roof. So there are 
responding to, but they don't know how to utilize the mother to call for her help and how to utilize her, the, her to basically help them um, restore their affect to calm down. So it's really all about how good is the bond in helping uh, the, the dyad, in helping to, uh, to regulate the baby's affect. Now, in oh. adulthood, we regulate each other's affect. Yeah, and I do want to get to that. We're almost up in a break here, and I have to say that I was watching some of those YouTubes yesterday. I found it very upsetting to sort of in- intentionally force a you know an eighteen month old to to oh, to cry and to be clearly upset and to I, I realize this is science and research and 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 everything looked like it worked out okay, but nonetheless it was it was rather disturbing to watch. I agree with you. Well, and and let's take that short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation with. Our guest, Amir Levine, he is a psychiatrist and neuroscientist at Columbia University, wrote a book uh, more than 10 years ago called Attached. It's been uh, reissued multiple times, and we are talking about attachment theory, um, how it uh, sort of boils down to a couple of basics having to do with secure, anxious, and avoidant theory or styles. We're going to take a very short break and then get back to our conversation. We'll be talking about oxytocin and dependency paradox. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. We are exploring the science of attachment with psychiatrist and neuroscientist Amir Levine. Well, let's talk a bit about oxytocin, this sort of cuddle um, cuddle chemical, I guess. Um, how does it work when it comes to attachment? What's, the, I guess, the connection between oxytocin and, and connection? Right. So now we're taking it, we're sort of shifting our view from uh, neurodevelopmental studies and social psychology studies to more neuroscience studies. And that's the whole uh, understanding of oxytocin. Oxytocin, uh, in its original usage, we know that it's actually the hormone that starts uh, labor and delivery. Right. That's what actually really facilitates labor and delivery. And I love that because it just shows you how, how beautiful nature is and how it repurposes the same, uh, it's a peptide, uh, for multiple uses, usages. And so what happens, it, in, it induces labor and delivery, but also at the same time what oxytocin does, it starts to facilitate the process of bonding uh, and attachment. And basically it creates, so, and you can see why obviously with labor and delivery and then with a new baby, you want to create that uh, initial feeling of bonding and love and attachment and that's what exactly what happens with the release of oxytocin. Now, they find also, they're finding now that oxytocin helps create that feeling of bonding in other areas of our lives mm. with our significant others and also with our pets. So oxytocin really works in increasing, I guess, I like to think about it this way. We all have this potential, uh, we have our own personal space and we don't like people to cross that personal space. But in order to let people in, because we have to meet new people, we have to sort of find our partner, 
you need sort of a biological reaction to facilitate that and allow us to uh, have them, allow us to sort of create this bond with them. And oxytocin is one of those things that uh, that works in the mix. And oxytocin also uh, is increased when we hug and caress other people. It, hmm. it gets released during orgasm. So it really, um, really, really, it really, you find multiple purposes to it. Another thing that studies found is that oxytocin increases trust. And that's very, I find that to be very important and kind of crucial when we look at pair bonding. Indeed. Let me quote something else from, from your book, from your book that you wrote in 2010. You say, our connection with our pets is an ex- excellent example of, our sec- of a secure presence in our lives. We can tap into our attitude towards our pets as a secure resource within us. We don't assume our pets are doing things purposely to hurt us. We don't hold grudges even when they eat something they shouldn't or make a mess. We still greet them warmly when we come home, even after a rough day at the office, and we stick by them no matter what. So if we examine our loving relationship with our pets, does that give us a, a kind of a window into what secure attachment is all about? Completely. So there's a, a whole uh, area of research within attachment science that's called secure priming. And the findings are, is that we can be securely primed to become more securely attached. And there's several ways in which they, we can do it. One would be like, for example, watching movies hmm. where they display a lot of secure relationships that people care for each other and people love each other. And that causes secure attack, that causes secure priming. Even just like watching pictures of loved ones or people that we have secure attachment with causes secure priming. So secure priming is a very, very powerful tool to help us become more attached. And one of the way to, uh, with secure priming is Oftentimes, our relationships with our dogs, hmm. we tend to be a lot more secure with our dogs because um, I guess maybe it's because like sometimes there, there are studies that found that when we look into their eyes and when they look into our eyes, uh, there's an increase in oxytocin on both ends, both uh, our pet and ourselves. And that causes this amazing link that we have with our pets. Well, and I must say, as, as uh, someone that lives with a dog that I absolutely adore, even when I'm patting him and hugging him, I, I feel what probably is oxytocin. I'm hoping he feels it as well. Oh, it's both oxytocin, it's endorphins. So it works on multiple levels. <laughs> it's oxytocin, it's endorphins. It's like multiple drug release that you get back from pet and dopamine as well. Oh, yeah. And they definitely feel it as well. Uh, but I have to say, even in dogs, that I really believe that there are attachment styles. And I've seen it in different dogs that I've had and also that my friends have. Some of them love huge amounts of closeness. You can see it on TikTok videos, which sure. I, I love watching TikTok videos of uh, people with their dogs. <laughs> Me too. As do many others, because you see how many likes they get. Like some of the dogs literally lie on their faces and they just don't want to leave them uh, for a minute. While other dogs, for example, my dog... He likes to be close, which is kind of like similar to uh, avoidant attachment styles in human. But he prefers to be at the edge of the bed. And when he like comes close to me, he faces outward, not like in my face. <laughs> so he also, so there are different dogs that have their preference of how close they want right. to be. Well, we could go on with dogs, one of my favorite subjects. But let me get back to, to human beings and even to attraction. Um, and you say actually sight and smell are so um, critical, so important to understanding attraction and connection. 
How does that work? So attraction, that's the thing that facilitates the connection. That's what really, because I, as I said, we always have this guard uh, to prevent um, other people from getting close to us and potentially harming us. But attraction causes that guard to really disappear. And then, so it worked both to our, you know, it can work in our advantage, but also disadvantage because we can let people, we really, we're not attracted necessarily to people. What happens is when we're attracted to someone, mm -hmm. there's, and they get close to us, there's a, the, the release of oxytocin. And that also increases that feeling of trust. So we become trusting of people that we're attracted to. And that's not always a good thing. Biolog I mean, biologically, it's like a necessity to get them close to us, but that can really go against us. And that's why a lot of the, you can see even on Netflix, they've had a series of shows about people who steal all these money from <laughs> other people because they come in and they convince them that they're their partners and then they just take their money and run away because we get we become so trusting. And you hear it oftentimes from people who are just starting to form relationships. They have this idea that everything will be fine. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're completely polar opposites. Oh, we'll work it out. You're this. Oh, it will be fine. Everything will be fine because it's just biologically we're driven to trust that like what could go wrong. We love each other. Um, and that's it's a, we're we're flooded with that oxytocin and that trust feeling. Well, but l let me ask you about, let's say there's a crowd of people and out of that crowd of people, two people get connected or they make eye contact or something happens. I mean, out of, let's say, a crowd of 20 people, wh what is what is going on there? Is it is it our smell? Is it the eyes? Is it our brain? Is it our body? W what is happening? I think so. Some of the studies about pair bonding really originates in the uh, in the voles, the prairie voles, the prairie voles. <laughs> Love the prairie um, voles. Yeah. Yeah, of course. We have to go to such seminal studies that they really showed some of the biological underpinning of social of of, uh, of of pair bonding. So what happens there, they meet, they copulate, and then they just like they're together. They hang out together all the time. There's a wherever they go, the other one goes, you see them together all the time. And there is a preference that that evolves because of that initial interaction that causes the release of oxytocin, vasopressin, and that bonding. And that preference really stays for a lifetime. And I think in humans, we also form bonds for decades. Um, so we also, and we definitely cause, we definitely specialize the other person. And for that to happen, we need to have a certain biological neurocircuitry that will drive that uh, distinction and that preference, that specialization, just like the voles do. And what happens is that there is a concentration of oxytocin receptors in the nucleus accumbens and the striatum, which is the reward area of the brain. Hmm. So this is where most drug of abuse work, right? So what like there's a concentration of oxytocin and it becomes hugely rewarding, the presence of that person. And on the other side, when the person is not at our side, it really releases a stress response. So not only is it rewarding to have them by our side, it also is hugely, very, very aversive to have them away from us. And it's all biologically orchestrated to keep us 
uh, very close to each other and available to each other. Just a quick follow-up. I mean, it, does that explain why we tend to be at- attracted to a certain type of person? You know what I mean? Like someone might be attracted to someone who's got, I don't know, like is 6'4 and, and uh, has blonde hair. Like, yeah, so I like that you actually mentioned the... So in rodents, in those voles, yeah, which are right. like little hamsters, their sense of smell is the most developed, much more than their visual sense. So their preference is for the smell of the of, of the vole. For us, for humans, visual uh, perception is probably our strongest suit. So there's a lot of visual preference that comes into play. And then um, I don't think we know exactly to explain hmm. why people prefer some over others. There are some studies that show that symmetry in the face, uh, people find that very attractive. So there are some issues related to that. But once that attraction happens and they get close enough to us, they need to get close and there needs to be some sort of uh, for that oxytocin to start to get released and for that bonding to happen. But definitely there's a huge uh, visual element for humans. I also think that there's an element uh, of smell and you see it oftentimes Mm -hmm when uh, people are just uh, forming their pair bonds, like in new love, they like they keep a shirt of their loved ones and they smell it and they sort of like, they, it's like they enjoy smelling. The, the, they, it's like you see it in action. It's really fascinating. Let me just quickly reintroduce you. That is uh, Amir Levine. He's a psychiatrist and neuroscientist at uh, Columbia University back in 2010. He wrote a book called Attached, uh, which has uh, never gone out of print ever since. And he's working on a new book titled Secure, the Art and Science of Human Connections. And we are talking about attachment and connections today on The Connection, (laughs) Uh, just to sort of uh, beat something to death here. Let me ask you about, um, we've been talking about secure attachments and anxious and avoidant. Should we think of anxious and avoidant uh, um, styles as pathologies? Right. So definitely not. And that's also, I'm so glad you asked this question, because when you look at TikTok, oftentimes avoidance and anxious are portrayed as pathological, unhealthy. And part of what really drew me to this field is that it's not based on the medical model. All of these studies are either drawn from neurodevelopment, which is where they studied how the kids develop and their attachment styles, or mm-hmm. social psychology, which is the field of study that really studied about these, how these attachment styles come into play in adulthood. And so they don't really concern themselves with psychopathology in the medical field. Oftentimes we look at psychopathology and how should we now cure or treat the patient to rid them of the psychopathology. Here, it's just a a, a variation on the norm. You couldn't possibly think that 25% of avoidance, uh, the people of the population that are avoidant, they're all uh, sick or 20%. Here, it's a variation on on the norm. And it's very important to understand from uh, an evolutionary perspective that it's hugely advantageous to have heterogeneity of variability within each population. And they had some, and so there is an advantage to being anxious or to being avoidant in certain situations, mostly when the surroundings are not safe. So I like... A vigilance, usually, yeah. Yes. So you're more vigilant. So there's one study that they did where they had like smoke come out of the, um, of, of, of the computer 
like they had these group of people and they so smoke came out of the computer and they found that those who were anxious were the first to spot the smoke and realize that something was going on and those who were avoidant were the first out the door and then everybody <laughs> followed them <laughs> so you can see yes. how the interplay how it could be hugely advantageous to have sort of i think about the anxious as the canaries that can really spot danger and actually research shows that they're pretty good that they have like a sixth sense for danger uh, sometimes they can sort of see things and misinterpret them but they certainly do see things and then the avoidant, uh, like it's when really you need someone to, okay, I have to go eat it alone. So you can see how there could be when really, when you, something really bad happens and you really need someone to just act. Uh, they're very, very good at that. And it could be hugely advantageous. Well, in fact, you say, just to underscore what you were just saying there, that evolution is about heterogeneity. That's not about everyone being you know, one thing or another that we needed to have heterogeneity in order to survive. Completely. It's, a, it's just more advantageous. It's like some of us are tall, some of us are short, some of us have blue eyes, brown eyes. It's just like it's part of the way that we're so different like, uh, physically. Also, our brains are very different. And it was very, very advantageous to have different traits. Um, now, that, 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 the fact that something is advantageous from an evolutionary perspective, right. doesn't necessarily translate into your own personal happiness. And that's very important to understand. Absolutely. And, and even going back to this notion of, of bonding between parent or caregiver and child, thinking about all the other influences on, on how we might view a connection or attachment to other people, as, as we've been talking a little bit about uh, genetics, nature, nurture, the environment, people that we interact with. And I think the idea, too, that development doesn't end when you, you know, reach 21 or 25. The development is something that happens through our lifetime. Especially social development. I mean, as a, as a species, our, I think our biggest asset, we're not particularly strong, you know, like elephants or like uh, agile, but our biggest asset is our ability to collaborate and form large societies and, and, and have language so we can speak to each other and sort of transfer ideas between one another. And it's really, and our social brain is so savvy and is so um, also malleable. And that's why I love this field so much as, as a therapist, because it can really help, even though, let's say, it's not advantageous that you're anxious, you can really help people because, and maybe good for evolution and for you. It can also be good in the real, in, in the, in the here and now. I have, um, a father of, um, someone in, in my practice whose uh, son, just at the beginning of the COVID, um, uh, beginning of COVID, he immediately felt that something was wrong. And he really, whenever he came to the school, he wore a mask and he wanted his child to wear a mask in New York. And that's before anyone wore masks. And they, they asked him to not come to the school wearing a mask. They told him that he's scaring people. Uh -huh. And he said, no way, I'm not doing that. And he actually even held his kid back at home and he taught him at home for a few weeks. And then there was an outbreak in the school and several parents in the classroom, actually, uh, one of them was in the intensive care unit with uh, really very, very difficult uh, COVID. So, it, so you can see when the, when the environment becomes dangerous, like with COVID, his sense of his ability to pick up on danger and take actions really potentially saved him and saved his family. So it really plays out. But also at the same time, 
in most of the time when things are not so dangerous, you can really help people become more secure. Well, let's take a another very short break, and we'll get back to our conversation uh, with psychiatrist and neuroscientist Amir Levine. We are talking about attachment, attachment that happens uh, at a very early age when babies are just born, but how attachment evolves and changes uh, through our lives as we grow older and have experiences and meet other people. And again, um, he's got a book that he wrote back in 2010 that is never gone out of print. It's called Attached, the New Science of Adult Attachment and How It Can Help You Find and Keep Love. We've got much more to talk about after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscow-Wayne. We're talking about why we feel a romantic connection with one person over another, why mothers so quickly bond with their newborn babies, fathers as well. Why do we feel so much affection for our pets? We're exploring the science of attachment with psychiatrist and neuroscientist Amir Levine, wrote a book uh, called Attach, and again, he's got a new one coming out he's working on now called Secure, the Art and Science of Human Connections. Well, we've been talking about uh, bonding and attachment. Let's talk about love and lust. Um, let's say there's attraction, but, but what happens when, when lust appears? The lust, meaning you're attracted and you really want the person, right? Exactly. So I think, I mean, if you think about it, really, it's such a huge, it's, it's such a huge task having, and it really happens in all, in, in, in the animal kingdom in general, our task is to leave the familiar and find someone sufficiently different from us to, uh, to then uh, have offspring with. And again, we're sent on that task by evolution, right? Because it's been uh, advantageous to have more heterogeneity now in the gene and the genetic level than to have everyone be the same and actually populations who only uh, intermarry have a lot more genetic diseases because of that. So there's a huge uh, advantage, but in it, there's also a danger. You're going out of your comfort zone. You're mm -hmm. going out of the, the familiar and the potentially the safe and into the unknown. So something has to kick in so we can drop our uh, barriers and really drop our defenses and let someone in. And that's something I think is lust. You see someone, you initially want them, but it's not enough, right? You need them close to you. And that can be potentially very dangerous. And it is dangerous. Sure. It really is truly dangerous. And so the thing, so it plays both advantageously in our biology. But again, what is good for evolution is not necessarily good for our well-being. And sometimes people overlook that what the biological, huge, very powerful biological forces are in play, and they need to be vigilant about who they're going to be let in, even though there's lust, because it really can blind us, and they can let the wrong people close to us. And we have, so I want to keep it on the more positive side. It's a very powerful, very, very um, 
explosive experience, but we have to realize we are not at the helm here. No. Well, what is at the helm? Is it is it is it our 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 hormones, our brain, our biology? It's really, I think, that what's at the helm is is evolution driven, mm-hmm. which really drives our biology. Because, like, the fact that we're all here, you are here, I am here, that means that we have ancestors on ancestors that at some point had to sort of engage in this whole process of leaving the familiar and finding someone, a stranger, to start like a family with. And that's not an easy process, but it has to happen in order for the continuation of the species. So it's much, much bigger than any one of us. It just takes over. And there's a whole biological interplay that goes into it. And then, as I said, getting close to someone that we're attracted to, it works on multiple neurocircuitries that involves it's like almost like taking a hit of multiple drugs at once hmm. of like like opiates like heroin um um i don't know cocaine <laughs> um marijuana um and other ones all at the same time it's such a powerful experience you say a really interesting thing and this is about couples that have been together is that their autonomic nervous systems kind of sync up, that their their blood pressure is affected by the other person, their heart rate, their breathing, even their immune system, that there's some kind of physiological dependency, I guess, on the other person in this very close relationship. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Oftentimes, and I know, and it was so important for me to write this because there's such an emphasis in our society about independence. There's this whole thing about codependence and how it's bad to be like dependent and you should be dependent first independent and then you can come together and that's interdependent. But from a biology perspective, all that doesn't really exist. Hmm. Once we bond with someone, we become one physiological unit. And it's very important to understand because a lot of people really are hard on themselves. Like, why do I have to be so needy? Why do I have to be, why is it important for me to hear from them? I should just be able to be okay on my own. And they really mix up so many things here and they don't understand that that's not our biology. Hmm. That's not reality. We become entirely one physiological dependent unit on each other. That's how we feel safe. You write about something, uh, and it's so interesting, and it kind of makes sense based on, on what we've been talking about, the dependency paradox. And and this, I can see this really applied to children, that once they feel safe and they're kind of dependent on their caregivers, then they feel, yes, I can go out and explore the world and, and I'll be okay. Can we apply that to adults as well? Yeah, so let's go back for a minute to that strange situation test that... Uh, that um, that I described. I really put a lot of emphasis on uh, the new toys and how the children are pointing at the toys, really curious and want to explore the world. And then when you take that safety from them, the attachment, it's just like you see it immediately. It's just like, no, they don't really care about the toys at all anymore. Like what was really the subject of huge interest was basically diminished in a second. So as adults, we, we still, that, that's the whole genius of adult attachment, mm-hmm. and now they came up with it, that we still have the same neurocircuitry that bonds us to uh, our significant others, but we don't play with toys anymore. But the same, the same system exists that equates 
safety, that we know that there's someone there that has our back, to our exploratory drive. But we explore through hobbies, through our work, through parenting, through friends. And when we lose that safety, it's like we lose interest in it. So we can lose interest in all of those things and become much less effective. Our exploratory drive gets shut down and everything becomes so much harder to do. How do we change our attachment styles? I mean, let's, I, I assume the goal is, is secure, but if someone is anxious or avoidant, how do you change that, especially as, as an adult? So, you know, I think after I wrote the attached, that really, really remained, that's one of the questions that I got all the time. So how do I become more secure? And how right. do I become more secure? And I didn't have an immediate answer to that. And it took me a good 10 uh, and some years to sort of working in my private practice with my research and understanding of how the brain works to come up more with a way of helping people become more secure. And that's why even I sat down and started to read this uh, new book I really have been working on for several years. It's really all about how to become more secure. Mm -hmm. And there's several ways in which we can do it. And I think, so first and foremost, just by knowing about these different attachment styles, knowing about anxious, avoidant, secure. There's one study from 2019 that showed that just by knowing about these different attachment styles can help you become more secure. So that's amazing, I think. Uh, can can I can do, do even... Yeah, can, yeah, can I just interrupt you quite there? Are people good at evaluating their their either their attachment styles or their personality styles or even their behavior are we good evaluators of our of who we are so some people know immediately when you tell them oh you love to be close but you're also very sensitive to danger if anything happens it's like oh my god what's happening why are they not home why are they doing this so they know that they're anxious uh secure people also often know i think avoidance sometimes have a hard time understanding that they're avoidant. It's like, mm -hmm. no, I, I'm perfectly fine with attaching to people. I just don't need to. <laughs> you right. said, it's just like, You're avoidant. I'm fine on my own. <laughs> right. Like, why? Like, who cares? I, I love people, but I don't want to be close to them. I just right. don't care about it. So they say, oh, I definitely am secure. So that's where it becomes a little... But so for some people, it's very easy. For others, it's harder. We do have a, a quiz on our, on our book's uh, website. And it's called uh, attachthebook.com. But also there are other quizzes about secure and like your attachment styles and finding out what your attachment style is. It's basically a self-report uh, scale or questionnaire. So I think people are pretty good at identifying their own attachment style. I think it's also very helpful, and we do have that in attached in the book, like to start and listening to listening, to start listening to what other people's attachment styles are. Hmm. And not from a place of criticism. But really, for me, one of the biggest take-home messages from this uh, coming across the, all these the attachment signs, and you know, when I came across it, I was working in a therapeutic nursery, and we were doing uh, attachment therapy between mothers and PTSD and their toddlers, and it was so effective that I did something that I've never done before. I went and I read the whole list, the reading list, as that as a resident, no one has time to read. I read everything, <laughs> and that's how I came across adult attachment. And to me, I really experienced that whole knowledge as a revelation because I was going through a breakup at the time and I was with this person. I really started feeling, having feelings for this person. And for me, when I have feelings for a person, I feel, oh, I, I'm thinking about a future together. 
But the other person told me, no, no, no. When I start sort of be close to someone, I think about moving across the country. And I was like, what? And I thought, because I didn't know about these attachment styles, I thought what that means is that they just don't love me enough. Because if they love me enough, love always looks the same. Mm -hmm. They want to be with me. But that's not what the science says. The science says that people with different attachment styles will experience closeness and, closeness and intimacy differently. And if you understand where they're coming from, you can take yourself out of the equation a little bit and try to see things from their shoes and then adjust things more in line with what they need. And then hopefully they can adjust some of their things with what you need. And you can, it's because it's about this relationship dance and then that you don't step on each other's foot, right? On each other's feet. Um, and I think that's very important. So also being able to understand other people's attachment styles, because then you can mentalize hmm. what we call theory of mind. Where are they coming from? How do they experience the world? You also say, and I sort of this underscores what you're saying now, is that people with secure attachment styles tend to make their anxious and avoidant partners more secure as well. So is part of the goal then to seek out people that, that appear to have uh, secure attachment styles because you can either learn from them or it, it gives you a sort of trusting relationship? Yeah, you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, if you want the easy route, <laughs> go secure for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for sure, because <laughs> um, I have to say in the process of, of working this, the, this past several, like this past 10 decade, I just, I fell in love with the secures in this world. And it's not <laughs> a given because these are often people in our lives that we kind of like ignore because they're always there for us. They're completely dependable. Our energy often is more diverted into where there's drama the, the people who didn't return our call, the people who things don't really are not that smooth, you know. But I've learned to really put the secures of my of my in, in my life center stage because of the familiarity. And I've learned I think about it more hmm. as as a six like as as a talent like as a superpower. They're just so good in relationships. They're so good in talking about things. They're so good in picking up what you need. And they show that also with kids, by the way, that secure moms, it's not that they tend to their kids more, that they hold them more, or they feed them more. It's that it's more that they have this sixth sense of knowing when they want to be felt, fed, when they want to be held. And in adults, you see the same thing. And that's why I said, if you understand where the other person is coming from and use theory of mind, then you can become more secure just by really trying to sort of like anticipate and care for them. And they also need to care for you. And that's the other part of the relationship understanding, right? Because if you're one physiological unit and your uh, well-being is dependent on each other, so you'd better look after each other's well-being because it will their well-being is your well-being. Literally, mm -hmm. you can't really separate it. But I'm also thinking for those people who are secure, that you have a kind of radar for other people. I guess you have a, a degree of empathy. You're able to to connect with them. Then you get this dose of oxytocin, and then you feel connected. I mean, does it become this rather self-fulfilling, uh, you know, rabbit wheel? What you mean? Because they, they're so easy. So, you know, I have to say... I think people think, oh, so, I mean, I've described secures are so wonderful. But I think part of the thing is they just don't see a lot. They feel comfortable with closeness, 
and they just don't really they they have mm -hmm. a radar that sucks at identifying danger. So let's say their spouse is having an extramarital affair, they'll be the last to know. Wow. Where someone anxious, they'll be the first to know. So it's easier for them because they just things go over their head and they don't see it. And so, but sometimes life it's easier that way. You say, I'm looking at the clock here, that relationships are not about big gestures. It's the small things that can help us stay connected. Expand on that. Right. Again, if we think about, so if we think about things from a, from a physiological point of view, I'm, I'm, I'm a neuroscientist, I'm a biologist, so I think about things about biological systems. So there's this whole concept that's called homeostasis, which is, it's just like a big word for stability. <laughs> like <laughs> systems, biological systems like stability. And we, in our culture, think that stability is something bad, that something is bad in the relationship because it's stable. And I think it's sort of fed by a lot of like romantic films and notions, but that's what the research actually shows. The research actually shows that when people are there for you, when you feel heard and loved, in the small ways, in, in just like, um, I don't know, not having to ask for things to be done for you, but mm -hmm. someone's kind of like having a feel for what you need um, or thanking your spouse for things. I love to say thank you all the time for the most like, oh, thank you for loaning the dishwasher. Thank you for doing the laundry. It's like just thanking and thanking all the time. I also love apologizing. People make such <laughs> a big deal of apology. It's like, but really sincerely, yeah. I didn't want to hurt this other person they're they're my physiological sort of we're part of one thing why not apologize and make them of course why would i want to hurt them so and if i did so i love apologizing i love thinking and it all reaches that stable emotional feeling of course you can also uh sort of i don't know buy something like in this expensive trip but it's not that goes on top of the stability you can't exchange that for stability our physiological system is not going to buy it. It's not going to buy it. Well, you know what, Amir Levine, we could go on. I'd love to go on, but I have to say goodbye. And I thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection. Thank you. It was a pleasure. A pleasure for us as well. He's a psychiatrist, neuroscientist, wrote a book called Attached, and a forthcoming book called Secure. You can download a podcast of the show wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Instagram and find us on Facebook. Diana Martinez, the engineer for today's edition of the show, produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray-Bessler. I'm Marty Moscow-Wayne. <laughs>